In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus instructed the twelve as follows. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. Anyone who prefers son or daughter to me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow in my footsteps is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And those who welcome me welcome the one who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet will have a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a holy man will have a holy man's reward. If anyone gives so much as a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, then I tell you solemnly, he will most certainly not lose his reward. We're in Matthew chapter 10, and this is the second big discourse of Jesus in Matthew. The first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount, which lasted for chapter 5, 6, 7. And now chapter 10, Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 10, has called together his, his apostles, has defined the group of apostles. And now he talks to them, he tells them about their mission. So he gives them, if you want, their vocation. And he explains it thoroughly. So really, we can understand this text as addressed to those who follow Jesus, who are his disciples already. So it's the second major discourse after, after quite a few miracles in chapters 8 and 9. It's really understood to be the missionary discourse, where we have Jesus who speaks to his disciples, his apostles, and his apostles only. And at the end, he sends them out. So they are to continue the mission of Jesus in the world. But in this text, this text is very strange because it seems like Jesus, who on one hand seems to be a lot more amicable in some respect than, than the God of the Old Testament with all the wrath and, and the punishments that we can hear of in the prophets, uh, here has some very harsh words. And words that seem to contradict somewhat the teaching of the Old Testament. So anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. Now imagine those words in anyone else's mouth but Jesus. Imagine someone, a leader of a political party, a leader of a cult, a leader of a religion saying those words. These are very, very scary words. These are words which are in the mouth of anyone else 
really are not right at all. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. If I was to say those words to you, I hope you would report me to the bishop. Because these are really unacceptable words. Why? Because the bonds of filiation, fatherhood, motherhood, the bonds that link us together to our parents and link us together to our children, are the primary bonds that we have as humans. The most sacred bonds, the most valued, the most precious. They are the, the fabric of human life. And so that any outsider would be claiming to have primacy over these essential fundamental bonds of human life and society is scandalous, is outrageous, and is wrong. So how can we understand these words? And it's true, you're absolutely right. Only the Creator has the right to say this. But what does Jesus say? Anyone who prefers father or mother to me. He's not saying anyone who prefers father or mother to God. Because these words would make sense then, wouldn't they? But anyone who prefers father or mother to me. And so you can see already the claim, the manifestation of his identity that is revealed to us in the words of Jesus here. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me. And in fact, the whole text is about Jesus talking about me, 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 me. Which really is surprising in the mouth of Jesus who, who loves us and gives his life for us. But it's all about Jesus saying something about himself as me. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me. Anyone who prefers son or daughter to me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow in my footsteps is not worthy of me. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then with the welcome, those who welcome me, welcome the one who sent me. Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. Jesus places himself at the center of this discourse and in so doing makes claim that no human person should rightly make, that no human person has any authority to make. This is a language that should not be uttered by anyone but God. And so within this very text, we see how Jesus actually reveals himself as God, which links this profoundly, this gospel is profoundly linked then to the gospel of the feast of St. Peter and St. Paul, where in Matthew 16, 13 to 25, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? And where he's not explicitly said before I am the Messiah, is, implicit, is implied it in every way, and especially in that text in, in Matthew 10 that we have uh, in the liturgical year, in the ordinary time, Sunday 13th, and here Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's interesting is that even in the gospel that is used for the feast of St. Peter and St. Paul, 
the bonds of filiation are present in such a strong manifest way. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So fatherhood and sonship is implied here. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So we shift, if you want, from earthly fatherhood, Simon, son of Jonah, to divine fatherhood and sonship. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. My father has revealed this to you. We, we are taken up to another level of reality of, of filiation. And this is where we have a clue to understand the text that we actually have on the 13th Sunday. These bonds of filiation, which are absolutely fundamental to understanding who Jesus is and who we are. Anyone who prefers father and or mother to me is not worthy of me. Isn't that contradicting as well? The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, do you remember? Honour your father and mother. This is actually inserted in the Ten Commandments. If we look at the, at the Ten Commandments, as they are in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 21 to 17, we're on Mount Sinai and God is giving the law to Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God begins by telling us about who he is and what he has done so that we are inserted within a history, within something that's already happened historically, the history of, of the salvation of the people of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. And then you shall not make, not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness. The first verses from 2 to 6 are really considered to be the first commandment. I am the Lord, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make yourself idols, basically. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The third commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And then the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. So by saying that anyone who prefers father or mother is not worthy of me, isn't Jesus contradicting the Ten Commandments? That the Ten Commandments, the word of God, the law given by God on Mount Sinai is actually prescribing to us to honour our father and mother, to prefer them to ourselves in some way, to give them honour. And this is high up on the list. It comes before you shall not kill. We can understand, that, therefore, those words of Jesus to be, if Jesus is not God, to be blasphemous, to be against the law, to be scandalous. If Jesus is God, we can see that what Jesus is actually saying here fits perfectly well with the Ten Commandments. Because our relationship with Jesus, then, has to do with the first three commandments, and our relationship with our family has to do with the fourth commandments and then onwards down below. If you want, the, the Ten Commandments are divided in two parts. The first three commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And the seven last commandments have to do with our relationship with each other. And, and what Jesus is doing here in this very concise, implicit way, if you want, is to tell us, 
unless you have the first three commandments right, the rest is not going to follow. And so he's not saying to us to completely discard, ignore, disrespect our, our mother and our earthly father and mother and our earthly sons and daughters. But he's saying to us, there has to be an order in your life. And in your life, God has to come first. And as I am God, I have to be first. If you want to have everything following, if you want, if you, if you want to have order in your, in your life, if you want to, to have a moral life that is ordered, and if you want to be open to the grace that will enable you to live this moral life, because of course we're, we're in a fallen state, in a state of sin. So Jesus reveals himself very strongly as God. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. Is this completely new? Well, yes, it's new insofar as here is God in the flesh. Here is Jesus who is both fully God and fully man. And what you see in Jesus, you see a human being who speaks the word of God. It must be so utterly shocking to hear these words from a, a human mouth. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. And yet there's something profoundly ancient about these words as well. Because if you remember, when the history of salvation began, it started with precisely the same invitation given by God to a single man, Abraham, in Genesis 12. We started the history of salvation by God calling Abram, as he was there, Genesis 12, 1-4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, God was saying to Abram, You have to prefer me over your father's house. You have to follow me rather than stay in your father's house. And in so... In so doing, in leaving the house of his father, Abraham receives a new identity, becomes Abraham, becomes the friend of God. So not only does God, right at the beginning of the history of salvation, about 2,000 years before Christ, ask Abraham to leave his father, but he also asks Abraham, as he is then, Abraham, to sacrifice his son. Anyone who prefers son or daughter to me is not worthy of me. So we find here echoes as well of the sacrifice of Isaac, that God puts Abraham to the test, asking him to sacrifice the very son that he has miraculously given to him, the son of the promise. And Abraham places his faith, his trust in God, Trusting, as the letter to the Hebrews says us, that God who, who miraculously gave him Isaac would have the power to raise him up. That's the interpretation that scripture in the letter to the Hebrews gives on scripture. So it's not like Abraham was ready to completely lose his son, but he was obeying in trust. But in so doing, he preferred the word of God. He preferred God to even the gift that God had given him. 
And interestingly, in the first reading this coming Sunday, we have a, quite an obscure reading about the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4, 8 to 37. And we only, in the liturgy, we're only given the first half of the reading, which is that Elisha finds hospitality with a, a good woman who decides to set up a room for him because he's constantly passing by. And that woman is barren. And so Elisha miraculously intercedes and, and gets her to, to conceive a son. So she receives a son and she doesn't really believe that this is possible, but then she, she, she receives that son. So we have something a bit parallel to the story of Sarah, who is visited by the three angels in verse 16. At this season, when the time comes around, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Now, this is where we stop with the liturgy, but the reading carries on. And what happened is that the child dies. So the, the Lord gives her a son and takes away a son. And we have this whole tragedy. And the, the boy dies. And so the woman, when she discovers that her son is dead, just goes straight to Elisha and will not budge until Elisha himself, rather than his servant, will come to the house and do something about it. And she will not leave him. We have it in verse 30. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So she won't take no for an answer. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi, so that's the servant, went on ahead and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. And so the child is dead. And so Elisha comes into the house and prays, and there's a whole bizarre prayer where he stretches himself on the child, and there's a whole thing. And then finally the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes, so he raises the child from the dead. And so in this story, we see, we see someone who is experiencing the earthly bonds of sonship and is bereft of that son in an earthly manner. And we see that the Lord is the giver of, of this gift of sonship. Anyone who has children, this is primarily a gift from God. And then that gift is taken away. And this is where the tragic question, why? Why? And here Jesus, if you want, is beginning to give us not really an answer, but a way to follow himself. Jesus is beginning to give us an answer to that question of why is that son taken away? Why are these earthly relationships of filiation of family bonds of having a mother and a father a son and daughter why are they so fragile why are they taken away and why are they also marked by sin jesus re-establishes these relationships within the overall plan of god and in so doing he heals them so it's not that they're bad and they need to be discarded it it means that they have to be ordered, ordered to 
the primary relationship that we are given as a total gift, which is our sonship in God. We are moving in that text from one filiation to another, from our earthly filiation, our earthly bonds of sonship with our earthly parents, uh, or our earthly children. And we discover from that text that these earthly bonds are actually only an image of the greater reality in which we are invited because God himself reveals himself to to be father and son. So those bonds that we experience as so precious are precious indeed because they're an image of the fundamental reality of God, the unchangeable eternal reality of God who before any earthly father and son were created is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we move from the image to the reality, and and the way to move from this image to the reality is through the cross of Jesus, who through the cross and resurrection bestows on us his own sonship, makes us the adopted children of the Father. And so he invites us not to prefer the earthly reality, which is good and given by him, but is limited and fragile to the more fundamental reality of our identity as children of the Father in him through the Holy Spirit. And if you want, it's the same analogy as is used in the sacrament of marriage. In the sacrament, why is marriage a sacrament? It's a sign and a cause of grace, but a sign of the love of Jesus for the church. And the love of Jesus for the church sounds extremely abstract compared with the real love of a man for a woman and a woman for a man. The, the, the absolute reality, physical, emotional, lived reality of human love in conjugal union, that's real. And yet the church tells us, no, that's the image, the reality the greater, more fundamental reality, the reality that is unchangeable, that is eternal, that will last, that is perfect, is the reality of the love of Jesus, of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, for the church, for humanity. That's the reality that marriage is an image of. If you want, we can apply this same understanding to the reality that we experience of our family with with all its greatness and its goodness and its fundamental importance, without which we can't be without our family. Our family causes us to be, as it were. We, we exist, we find our identity, and not only biological, but in every possible way from our, our mother and father, from our filiation. Uh, this is Simon Barjona, Simon's son of Jonah, and we know how the Bible is filled with genealogies because this is so important. This is who we are. We come from someone who comes from someone. So as fundamental as earthly family is, as earthly family bonds are, these are but an image and an imperfect image, which is the consolation of the perfect filiation of the Son and the Father into which we are invited to participate absolutely gratuitously. And so we moved from this image to the reality 
And the movement comes through preferring nothing to Christ, as St. Benedict says. Preferring nothing to Christ and carrying his cross, following in his footsteps. This is the way in which we come to possess, if you want, the fullness of the divine sonship, divine filiation, the adoption as sons and daughters of God, which is already given to us at baptism. In fact, in baptism, we are baptized in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We already, if you want, have the mark of the cross on us. And the rest of our life, we enter in more and more into that identity which is given to us through taking up our cross and following Jesus. So in other words, this discourse of Jesus to his apostles is not just something about apostleship and how to do mission. It's a defining discourse for all the baptized, because all the baptized are disciples and apostles in, potentially. All the baptized are marked with the cross, and all of humanity is called to, to enter into that identity. Into the, in, is, the baptism is for everyone. It's an invitation of grace to enter into the very family of God. Jesus not only shows us the fundamental family from which all family, if you want, takes its existence and name, the, the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he shows us how to love, how to be in that family. And we have the witness of Jesus who gives his life for us. And this is where we, we find in the text something about him that is profound as well, because in that very gospel, we have a self-portrait of Jesus. Jesus actually refers us to himself, but in referring us to himself, he also tells us what he has done. He's the one who has been sent on mission by the Father. He reveals to himself as God, of course, uh, because only God could claim those things, or make those statements. But also, he's the first one to take up the cross. So he's not asking us to do something he hasn't done himself. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow in my footsteps is not worthy of me. This is the way that he shows us. This is the way of love. This is the way of being the son of the father, of giving his life out of love. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. When uh, he is in front of Pilate in John, he says, For this I have come into the world. He has come to be king, but to reign from the cross. He has come to give his life for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he has come to lose his life. And in losing his life, he finds it not just for himself, but for all of us, because his resurrection is, is the promise of our resurrection. He is the one who has welcomed us, but the one we have not welcomed. And for that, we only have to read the Passion. He is the one who is the prophet that we have not listened to. He is the holy man that we have rejected, the innocent Lamb of God. This is through our sin, you know, the, the sin of the whole of humanity and each of our personal sins. We reject him. So we see how how he gives us a self-portrait. Again, he's not asking the apostles to do anything he's not done himself. So he preferred us to his own life. He preferred us to himself by giving his life to us. And so he's asking us to do the same thing. And we find ourselves as well in that gospel, in the, insofar as we find our own identity. 
So from this natural filiation to the divine filiation in the Father. And that is the reality of eternal life. It's, it's, it's a family life, if you want, that will never end. That we start today in faith through the grace of baptism that is given to us, a new reality, which will enter fully when we see God face to face. So here, through this gospel, we find those few aspects that are, are very clear to us, that our union with Jesus should be and is by way of our baptism stronger than natural bonds because he's God he's the one we follow is the one we prefer is the one we worship and in so doing it doesn't mean that we give up anyone or anything but it means that everything comes to its own place and finds its right place that we're able to love everyone else in the proper right way that we don't place anyone to a position that they shouldn't have in our preference. So our union with Jesus is stronger than our natural bonds. And that makes our natural bonds actually stronger in a paradoxical sort of way. And we find this new identity, this profound identity. Now, when we think of ourselves, the first thing that comes to our mind what would it be? So, of course, it will be different for everyone. Perhaps the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of ourselves is that, well, I'm a, I'm a Smith or I'm a Jones or I'm a Duvos Duro in my case. I belong to this family. In terms of this is who I am, I belong to my family. I have my mother. I have my father, such as they are. And sometimes I only have one of them. I may not have anyone left. But still, I hold on to whatever origin I am given. I have my children. That can be the first thing we can think of. And yet these things, these loves, essential as they are, because this is our identity, our existence in, in, in human life, in earthly life, are imperfect, are finite. We can think, what is the first thing I can think of myself? Well, I'm... I'm a sinner. I'm not as good as I should be. I have done terrible things. And sometimes these are the things that will come out, that are most real to us. But here in this gospel, Jesus is telling us something very, very different. By inviting us to prefer nothing and no one to him, not even those who have the, 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 the greatest claim on us, our parents, our children, Jesus inserts us through him, through himself, into the heart and the love of the Father. So that in Jesus, the first thing we should think and know about ourselves is, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. This is my fundamental identity. This is my eternal identity. And no one can take that away from me. No matter what my earthly family is like, I am a child of God. No matter what the number and gravity of my sins may be, I am a child of God. I have been chosen and, and invited by Jesus 
and I want to follow him and that is enough. That is enough. He takes me. When, when he invites his disciples, he's not telling them to be perfect and then to follow him. He's inviting them to, be, to follow him and that will make them perfect. And this is, the, this is what we find in our life. But what is my first and fundamental identity? I am a beloved child of God. This is who I am. And no sin, no earthly relationship can take precedence over that, if you want. But that's, that's the consequence of preferring nothing and no one to Jesus. Because in preferring nothing and no one to Jesus, I'm not just following from a distance. I become one with him, not because I can do that, but because he's chosen to do that. This is what happens to us in baptism. This is what happens to us through the death and resurrection. This is what happens to us in all the celebration of the sacraments and especially the Eucharist. Communion with him, we become one with him. And in becoming one with him, we can claim his sonship. We become children of God in Jesus, his son. We have as much claim on the love of the Father as Jesus has. This adoption is real. We have a family. We, we share in divine nature. How do we do that? Through embracing the cross, of course, through grace. This is the work of grace in our life. Now, I want to read to you some paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on Grace, 1996 to 1999. These are wonderful paragraphs that we need to be really aware of because this is who we are and what God is doing for us, no matter what mess we can find ourselves into. Because the mess can always be cleared up by God's infinite forgiveness. But what we think of ourselves matter because it will determine where we're going. So here is what the Catechism tells us about this life of grace. Our justification comes from the grace of God. Grace is favour, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partaker of the divine nature and of eternal life. Grace is participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son, he can there henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the Church. This vocation to eternal life is supernatural. It depends entirely on God's gratuitous initiative, for he alone can reveal and give himself. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. It is the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. 
It is in us the source of the work of sanctification. So this reality of grace is our new fundamental identity and it is pure gift. There is nothing we can do to deserve it, nothing we can do to make it happen, nothing we can do to actually sort of take in a way, save really mortal sin. And of that, we always have a solution, if you want, in, the, in God's infinite mercy, which is given to us constantly in the sacraments of confession. So that grace is what we need to hang on to because it doesn't depend in any way on any human virtue and qualification and standards. If you want, it cancels no one. No one is excluded. Anyone can claim this who is baptized and tries at least to prefer nothing to Christ. It doesn't depend of our, on our intellectual understanding. It doesn't depend on our gifts. It doesn't depend on our social skills. It depends just on us having received the grace of baptism and living this life of faith in Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for us. This is it. So it really is universal in that sense. A baby can have this claim and a very old person who has dementia can have this claim. That same identity as adopted child of God, this is the gift of God to us. And this is why now we can understand in that light those words of Jesus, anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. Well, yes, because we can't prefer this natural, finite, limited reality, good as it is and necessary as it is, to this incredible life that is open to us by God in Christ. Because it's to prefer the image to the reality. And in the reality, the image is not discarded as a, oh, this was of no importance, this was... No, everything that we experience in our family life, in our relationships as with our parents, with our children, difficult as they are, can find in the grace of Christ a transfiguration. They can be redeemed. They can find a new and deeper reality in the identity, the profound identity that we have in Christ. So, what, again here, what Jesus is asking of us is what he himself has done insofar as in the text of Philippians, we can see that in some way, uh, in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, Jesus in some way left the Father. He preferred us to his equality with God. So there's a sense of Jesus divesting himself, humbling himself for us. He preferred, if he want nothing, not even his own life, to us. And there's a sense as well in the gospel where Jesus leaves his mother and prefers, seem to prefer the relationship that he has with his disciples to the relationship, the natural relationship he has with his natural family, his, his mother, and, and brethren who would be, you know, his extended family. So we have it only just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 12, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside asking to speak to him. 
But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brethren. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so we have here a confirmation that, yes, Jesus even sort of preferred, not that he preferred, she was the first of his disciples, so he didn't prefer his mother to us. But he left behind the natural call and claims and vocation of being a family man for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of the preaching of the kingdom. Left behind his earthly family to do the will of the Father. And he's asking us to do the same. Now, it's not just a gospel for priests and nuns. It's a gospel for every baptized person. How is my preference of Christ over every other earthly human bond visible and manifest? Again, not to say that they shouldn't be earthly and visible human bond. They should be as many as, as possible, as beautifully experienced as possible. But the preference for God needs to be there in the life of the baptized. This identity, this deeper identity as a child of God needs to shine out that God comes first as he does, as he claims to do in the Old Testament with Abraham, with the Ten Commandments, as he manifests and reveals himself to do in Christ. As Christ himself has done, God has to come first. And the church is this manifestation of God being first here on earth. The church will always claim, and this is what people find so irksome about the church, that the church will claim God has to come first. And that's what people don't, you know, we find really difficult. But this is, this is the mission of the church, to proclaim that, that Christ has to be first. And in so doing, it forms the, it becomes the family of God, that very family that Jesus was choosing over his earthly natural family. And in it, we share that common mission of carrying the cross of the crucified, sharing in the work of salvation, which is an incredible dignity. And it's a dignity we all have a responsibility. We all have as disciples, as apostles, we now are sent. And so this whole back and forth of welcoming and being welcomed is an image of the communion of saints because you you have the the apostles who are sent in the name of Jesus being welcomed but you have the people doing the welcoming as well and in welcoming them they welcome Jesus and in welcoming Jesus they welcome the father so we have all sorts of roles implied even in this very short text of the gospel you, you have the, the, the role of welcoming the apostles, then you have the prophets, then you have the holy man, then you have the little ones. All of them, all of these are included. And those who welcome are integrated, as it were, become participants in this whole communion. Because it's the life of Jesus welcomes me. The life, the presence, the reality of Jesus is being shared out in the church, is being enjoyed is being experienced through the charity of the church which is visible when she extends it not only to her own members but outside christ is present in his church welcomes me we have this confirmation again in in matthew 25 in the text of the the sheep and the goat 
Matthew 25, 34 to 36, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus identifies himself to suffering humanity in the same way he gives us his own identity as the son we become children of the father so there's an, a wonderful exchange where he takes our poverty and in the poor we see him and we receive his sonship we have his father now as our father who takes precedence over our earthly father without taking over without annihilating our earthly father on the contrary, now the bonds that we enjoy, that are there, that are imperfect, but that we enjoy and that we value of our family, reveal something to us now of the very nature and love of God.